Amen. You may make your way back to your seats. Thank you so much. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't it just good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? And a warm welcome to our new partners. Um, I mentioned in our partnership uh, training that church partnership should never be looked at uh, uh, from the angle of I'm joining a church and becoming a member of a church. It should be looked at from the angle of I'm partnering with this local church uh, in spreading the gospel, in growing the gospel. Uh, when we look at how the right hand of fellowship was administered uh, to Paul by the apostles, uh, they were giving him the approval in joining them in spreading the gospel. And that's what, uh, what rebirth is about. Amen. Amen. So it's just uh, good to have uh, Pastor Neville in the house. Welcome, sir. Such a pleasant surprise. Uh, I heard Grenville mention last week that uh, one of his fears was, uh, you know, we always talk about one of the great fears being public speaking. Um, there's a few fears in the arena of public speaking, and one of them is preaching in front of one of your favorite preachers. <laughs> and so pray for me, beloved. It's also good to have Auntie Avril in the house. Auntie Avril, all the way from uh, Peter Maddisburg. She's uh, busy teaching in Johannesburg, so good to have you. Uh, she was uh, my Afrikaans teacher at some point. Uh, so, uh, Biki Afrikaans, Probier, Abiki Tao. I'm just kidding. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> All our visiting guests, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, also, Grenville and Lerone, also, and Auntie Avril. And there might be some of you hiding here uh, this, this morning. Uh, also, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, we have, um, hey, I wonder if we could get the aircon just to eat us from like a David Beckham free kick or something. And then um, uh, Tammy, Tammy's not in the house, and uh, Olani not in the house, okay. Uh, they had a gender reveal yesterday, and uh, for those of you who don't know, they are having a baby girl. They're having a baby girl. Um, more hair, more hair to be combed and washed, and my goodness. Um, yeah, so uh, the struggle is real in our house. Five girls, and it's like Armageddon when it's time to wash hair. Uh, here, I haven't been in the pulpit for like two or three weeks. I feel like I'm driving a manual car again. <laughs> uh, family, we continue with our series on the book of Exodus. Uh, Greenville did such an amazing job last week, um, just laying down the uh, foundation and context for us. Um, I don't know if we're going to get to Sinai, uh, but I, I don't see us getting to, to Egypt this morning. Uh, so I'm sharing the second part of our Exodus series, and the title uh, for this morning's message is uh, A Determined God and a Reluctant Man. A Determined God and a Reluctant Man. God is determined to deliver. Amen. Amen. Everything about what God does is redemptive. God's in the redeeming business. Amen. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Brookie, your party was yesterday. Your party was yesterday. You could have cried all you wanted to yesterday. All you wanted to yesterday, but you were smiling. 
<laughs> okay, I just lost my page. Yeah. Okay, we're going to read from chapter 3, verses 1, and, um, and just follow with me. I believe the reading of Scripture is an important um, aspect to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, we should never take it as though it's, uh, it's a by-the-way formality. It's actually a very strong and important feature in the preaching of the Word of God. We saw that in Nehemiah 8 when Ezra uh, began to uh, open up the book of the law. Bible says, They stood until morning, until evening, as Ezra read the book of the law and explained it. Yeah. Okay? Uh, and he was a dynamic preacher and teacher of God's Word. So let's take our cues from verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And then he said, do not draw near to this place. God bless you with a double portion anointing, uh, Candice. <laughs> Verse 5. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Verse 7. For the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Parasites. Are you still listening? <laughs> Verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up from the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Amen. And they shall heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice 
to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in the midst. And afterward, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of a neighbor, namely uh, of her who dwells near the house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall, be, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Amen. amen. And amen. Preachers like to call that the great wealth transfer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a time in your presence. Lord, it is so hot, these temperatures. Lord, you've given us a preview of what it would be to spend an eternity without you. And we don't want to make that decision to live without you. And so, Lord, I thank you for what you've shown us in your word over these last couple of weeks as we've been reading through the book of Exodus. What you've shown us about your heart and your plan for, for the world and your plan for the church. I pray, Lord, that this morning you will encourage us, you will speak to our hearts, you will confront us, convict us, and challenge us, and change us, conform us more and more into your image. Anoint my lips of clay, Lord, that I may speak as an oracle of the Lord this morning. I pray, oh Lord, that you will just uh, manifest yourself in a special way. Open to us the wondrous things in your word. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus and God's people says. Amen, amen and amen. Family, you know the author uh, of the book of Exodus is Moses. The last part recorded of his death is said to have been completed by Joshua. The original intended audience is the Hebrew people and their future generations. The big idea and main purpose behind the book of Exodus, uh, Pawson stated that Exodus is the story of the greatest escape in the history of the world. In fact, Exodus 12 tells us that there were 600,000 men excluding women and children. I am one man in my house, surrounded by six females. So scholars predict that there could have been around two million people under the bondage of Egypt. So the escape of Egypt, if the escape from Egypt would have been impossible because Egypt was a dominant superpower. A fortified nation there was no one more powerful than Pharaoh no one in the known world so Israel was in a desperate place and the only chance of escape would have had to come from an outside intervention not from within Israel the only chance of escape would have had to come from someone or a power more powerful than Pharaoh himself. And there was no one more powerful and dominant than Pharaoh himself. And so God would do for Israel what they could not do for themselves. And that's the heart of the gospel. God doing for sinners what sinners cannot do for themselves because the Bible says while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Bible says in Ephesians 2 that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air God who was rich in mercy raised us up together with Christ and that's the message of Exodus the big idea in the book of Exodus Exodus can simply be divided into two main parts. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 18 deals with the redemptive narrative of how God rescues Israel out of the land of Egypt and how they move and migrate from Egypt into the wilderness. The second part of Exodus deals with the legislative narrative, deals with the revelation of the law between chapter 19 and 40. 
And so the first half deals with how God delivers the children of Israel out of slavery. And when we get to the second half, the second half describes how God now says, okay, I've delivered you from darkness. Now I need you to walk in the light. Here are some laws. In other words, it's not enough to be set free. We have to live and walk in the freedom where Christ has set us free. Amen. And so if he set you free from addiction, if he's set you free from a life of debauchery and, and a life of sin, God calls us to walk in holiness. Amen. Amen. He calls us to walk in the light. Amen. This morning, our Bible topic, as we usually do, our Bible topic will be on the subject, the immutability of God. Simply means the timelessness of God, the unchangeableness of God. And when we read Exodus 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, when he wanted to know what was his name, he said, I am who I am. Tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 and 18 speaks of the immutability of God's uh, reading as follows. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Two immutable things. Firstly, the, that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. He's immutable and unchanging in his character and his nature. Second immutable thing is that when he swears an oath, he is unchanging and obligated to fulfill that oath. And so there are five things I want to share very quickly about the immutability of God. But before I do, uh, let, me just, let us just define what the immutability of God is. It was Grudem who stated that the immutability of God speaks to God being unchanging in his being, in his perfections, in his purposes, in his promises. Yet God, though being unchanging, does not, does not negate the fact that he acts and feels uh, emotional at times and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Karini stated that God's immutability is his freedom from change and his freedom from being the same being and he is the same at all times, past, present, and future. The first thing we need to know about the immutability of God is to state that, uh, to say that God is immutable uh, is, to say, is to declare that his character is eternally consistent. He's a perfect moral being and cannot change for the better or for the worse. In other words, he cannot improve himself. He cannot upskill himself. There's nothing new he can learn. He's a perfect moral being that is eternally consistent. Secondly, God's life is immutable, which is to say he eternally is. He has no beginning and he has no end. God never began to be, nor will he ever cease to be. His life simply is. He does not come into being and he does not go out of being. He existed before there was a calendar, before there was a clock. He never came into being. He always was. Thirdly, the immutability of God is an incommunicable attribute of God. And what do I mean? I mean that this quality and characteristic of God, he doesn't share with any one of us. A communicable attribute of God is an attribute of God that we are allowed to share in to some extent. In other words, when the Bible says God is holy, he requires us to be holy also and he shares his holiness with us but to a certain extent when we speak of God being righteous it means that we can participate in his righteousness in the righteousness of Christ but to a certain extent but when we speak about the immutability of God we must understand that God cannot change but we do yeah. we do amen. amen this is a quality of God that separates the creator from the creature 
Fourthly, the truth of God's immutability and unchangeableness. I don't know if that's even a word. Does not deny that there is change or development in how God relates to us in the work of salvation. In other words, yes, the Son of God became the Word that was made flesh. But this had no alteration on His divine nature. He is now what He has always been, God. And He, Jesus, is now what He was not, man. And we always have the God-man in heaven. Amen. Lastly, God's immutability uh, with respect to his plan in redemptive history means that he does not change concerning the plan of redemption. He never lacks foresight or knowledge to anticipate all the eventualities around your salvation and he never lacks the power to effect his plan. He is both omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, and he is both Omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. J.C. Ryle stated, The saddest part of all the good things on earth or of earth is their instability. Riches make themselves wings and flee off. Youth and beauty are but for a few years. Strength of body soon decays. Mind and intellect are ever-withering. All is perishing, all is fading, all is passing away. But there's one splendid exception to this general rule. That is the friendship of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus himself is a friend forever who never changes. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. And the fact that he is immutable and doesn't change means that we can trust him. Because he is the rock of ages. He's a rock that cannot be moved a rock that cannot be shaken. Amen. Amen. Are you still with me, church? Amen. Amen. So how we're going to approach our passage of scripture is we are going to, going to uh, attack it in five parts. It's divided into five parts. Uh, I didn't read chapter 4 verses 1 to 17 because I felt you sorry. <laughs> I felt you sorry. Okay, next time I won't feel you sorry. Okay, so from chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we deal and we look at the manifestation of God's presence. Then from chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, we will look at the Lord speaking to Moses. Then from verses 11 to 15, we look at the revelation of God's name. And then from verses 16 to 22, we will get God's program to Moses that he gives to Moses. And then lastly, from chapter 4, 1 to 17, we will look at the reluctance of Moses and the anger or indignation of God. Amen. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 very quickly. The manifestation of God's presence. Now the purpose of verse 1 is to give us some idea around the circumstances that were surrounding the life of Moses when the call of God interrupted him. There's a few facts we gather around the life of Moses when we look at verses 1 to 3. And Greenville covered most of it last week. First thing we gather is that we are told that Moses has now taken up the occupation of a shepherd and is tending to his father-in-law's flock. By now it is obvious that Moses no longer identifies himself as an Egyptian. He identifies himself as an Israelite. The reason for this, Douglas stated that an Egyptian would never take up the occupation of a shepherd. It was beneath them. But this was the custom and the occupation that would be adopted by Israelites. So Moses is not intending to use his, his, his dual citizenship as an Egyptian. He now identifies himself strong, strongly with being an Israelite, a Hebrew. We also learn from these verses that uh, the flock he is tending after is not his own, it's his father-in-law's uh, flock, which suggests that at this stage in Moses' life, being at near 80 years old, at this stage of his life, he had not come into any substantial means of his own. Still looking after his father's flock, father-in-law's flock. 
He's believed to be around 80 years old and he has nothing to show for it. He was once known as a prince in Egypt, strong, young, educated, skilled, someone with political clout, someone who had military knowledge, someone with special physical uh, gifting. He identified strongly with his own ethnic uh, people, which, which means he was very uh, you know, uh, sympathetic towards people. And then Moses decides to take matters into his own hands and he kills an Egyptian. And from that point, when he takes matters into his own hands, the dreams of grandeur fade away. And he's forced to flee from Egypt. Pharaoh wants to kill him. His own people reject him. And he's found now at the backside of the wilderness with no substantial means of his own. Some would say he is languishing in the wastelands. And at this point, some of us would even go as far to say he is in a very low place in life. Yet it's not the young, skilled, vibrant, uh, politically uh, astute Moses that God wants to use. It's not the youthful, vibrant, promising Moses with political clout and military expertise that God wants to use. God wants to use the Moses that is the most unlikely candidate for the job. And so I said this uh, to my wife on our wedding day because uh, when, when love found me, uh, I didn't have anything going for me, family. I just got my driver's license, <laughs> mid-30s, you know. Nothing was, was going according to plan, so I got up on my wedding, uh, wedding day and I said, you know what, uh, when God buys into a market that everybody says is going down, yeah. then you better know God knows something about the market that nobody else knows. And so God looks at Moses most unlikely candidate for the job yeah. and says i'm going to take this man and make him a prophet of deliverance i'm going to take this nobody and turn him into a trophy of grace because he wants the glory he doesn't want you to meddle with his glory and so he specializes in choosing the outcasts the throwaways of society to accomplish his purposes. And this is what the Apostle Paul said in his letters to the church at Corinth. He said, Brother, look around you. Not many wise are chosen. Yeah. Not many uh, uh, influential people amongst you are chosen, but God has chosen the things that are not to confound the things that are. Yeah. And so we can never cough up an attitude and assume for one moment that God is going to use us because we're intelligent. Because we are resourceful, because we're good looking and because we have a good uh, uh, stand in, in our society. Because God never has a problem in the recruitment and selection process. If you won't do it, he'll find someone to do it. He'll find someone to do it who has less of the skills that you have. And will do a better job than you can. Because he wants the glory. And so Moses is the most unlikely candidate going about his monotonous, mundane, routine life and job. He's at the backside of the desert. And while he's in the languishing in the wasteland, something supernatural occurs of great consequence. God shows up. God interrupts the ordinary life as if to say, Moses, I'm not done with you yet. And some of you need to hear that encouraging word today. You're looking at your life and it seems like everything is not together. Everything has fallen apart. Uh, and, and you need to hear that word this morning that God is not done with you yet. So God appears to Moses in perhaps one of the most spectacular ways. Bible says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so Moses turns and he looks and he sees that the bush is burning with fire, but the bush is not 
consumed. For a moment, I want to, you to consider that Moses found himself in the manifested presence of God. Have you ever found yourself in the manifested presence of God? Have you ever experienced the manifest presence of God in a spectacular way? God's presence always exists in two realities. We speak of His omnipresence, meaning that God is present in all places at all times. And I like the story of, 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 of my brother Grenville. Uh, he, was, uh, you know, he was in a nightclub uh, many years ago when God found him in a nightclub. There's no place you can hide from the presence of God. I'm not saying go to a nightclub to find the presence of God. But I'm saying when God has a bounty on your head, it doesn't matter where you find yourself, He will come looking. A Holy Ghost will show up in a club. Man, I had one brother call me. One brother called me in the middle of a, of a club. Some, I don't know if it was in Pretoria. He says, he says uh, this, this, the name of this place is Babylon. You know, and I'm under this conviction of sin. I said, brother, there's no place where you can hide from the presence of God. David said, Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? If I make my bed in Hades, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, you are there even. His omnipresence is everywhere. God's presence also dwells in the reality of His manifested presence. In other words, there's moments where He shows up and He's tangible. In some cases, there are angelic experiences. If you have the time, have some tea with Zoe, she will tell you about an angelic experience. She had in a meeting where everybody saw this visitation of an angel. There's times He just manifests Himself and it becomes obvious and clear that God is speaking and God is here and, it be, and your five senses become aware and heightened to the fact that God is here right now. And so what am I trying to say? There is a difference between saying God is everywhere and God is here. Yeah. 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 There's a difference. Yeah. And the challenge is some of us have not spent enough time in prayer to experience His manifest presence. Some of us have not spent enough time in worship to experience His manifest presence. You know, when I'm, when, when I'm alone in the car, the chances of me playing is very low. I put on worship. Because that's the place God finds me. There's no kids screaming and fighting and and no Zoe is saying we need to do A, B, C, D. It's just me in the car and God shows up. God shows up. It feels like that caravel is now, like I'm driving an Atos, you know. And it's like the presence of God is with me in the car. And, and I need a, a windshield wiper to clear my eyes because I can't see the road. Because God shows up in a real tangible way. Some of us have not even attended church long enough to experience a manifest presence in the house of the Lord. And so Moses experiences the manifest presence of the Lord and the Bible says an it was an angel that appeared to him in a flame of fire. Now there's two schools of thought around us. Firstly, uh, some scholars say that it's like God doing a con video conference call, you know. Uh, he's, he's just using the angel to, 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 to speak through. Uh, and, and when we look over the Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied, they prophesied in first person. Uh, you know, the Lord is saying, the Lord speaking, I, the Lord, uh, have called you and chosen you, Israel, to myself. And then there's a second school of thought, which I am inclined to, uh, where Douglas referred to this as a fire theophany. Don't get scared of theological terms, family. The word theophany simply means the appearance of God. Norman defined a theophany as a visible manifestation of God himself in the earth. 
Douglas, in more simpler terms, referred to a theophany as an appearance of God in the form of an angel. Now, the angel of the Lord is a very enigmatic theme in Scripture, a very complex theme in Scripture, because there is a distinction you will notice between the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. When we look at Exodus 3, we find that the most expressive attributes of God are applied to this angel. In fact, when you look at Exodus 23, you find out that God speaks of this angel and says, I have put my name in him and he has the power and authority to forgive sins and not to forgive sins. Now, what kind of angel has endowed himself with, with a function, an attribute of God to forgive sins? The angel of the Lord motif appears 60 times during the Old Testament period in what's believed to be a theophany. But I'm convinced that the New Testament is not the first place Jesus made an appearance. I believe every theophany is a, theo is a Christophany. Every appearance of God in the Old Covenant is an appearance of Christ. When, when Jacob wrestled with an, with an angel, with the angel of the Lord, uh, by the Jabbok River, I believe he wrestled with Christ because he said, surely I've seen the face of God. That's right. I believe when Joshua stood before the commander of hosts who gave him his mandate and mission, I believe it was Christ who pointed that two-edged sword at Joshua's tent and said, I'm neither on your side or their side, I'm on the Lord's side. And so the angel of the Lord appears in Genesis 16 to Abraham, where Abraham calls and addresses the angel as Lord. He appears in Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter, chapter 6, Judges 13, and some say he was even the fourth man in the fire. Guzik stated that undoubtedly this is another occasion where Jesus has appeared before his incarnation in the Old Covenant as the angel of the Lord as he did many times. Clark stated, and who is this angel who is called Lord but Jesus, the leader, redeemer, and savior of mankind. Amen. Jude chapter 5, Jude states, uh, in the, and Jude writes from the earlier manuscripts he says now I want to remind you although you once fully knew that it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt Come on. afterward destroyed those who did not believe so it was Jesus who was that angel of the Lord who led the children of Israel out from the land of bondage and so and so the Lord appears to Moses from a burning bush the bush was burning with fire but not being consumed fire is always a symbol of God's presence uh, we see later again uh, in uh, Exodus 19 when God appears and manifests on Mount Sinai that he appears again in fire and so Foster and Brown states that the burning bush that was not being consumed seems also to be emblematic and illustrative of Israel's condition. Here they are in Egypt being oppressed with a grinding kind of servitude and bloody persecution and they were under a cruel policy that was bent to annihilate them. Yet they continued to prosper. Yet they continued to thrive. And the reason God was in their midst. Reminds me of the three Hebrew boys who were thrown into the fiery furnace but were not consumed. Reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 4. Hard pressed on every side yet not crushed. Perplexed yet not in despair. Struck down but not destroyed. When you have God in your life, the storm can go on. And you can still find a peaceful night of sleep. Amen. When you have God on your side, all hell and high water can break out, but you will not be destroyed. Amen. You will still have the joy of the Lord in your heart. That is your strength. Amen. And so the Lord calls to Moses. Now we look at verses 4 to 10. The Lord speaks to Moses. 
And the Lord calls him and says, Moses, Moses. And Douglas has suggested that in ancient Semitic culture, when you are addressed by your name twice, it is an expression of endearment and affection and friendship. In other words, when God called Moses into his assignment, it was also an invitation to a friendship. It was also an invite into a relationship with God. And that's what the call of God is about family. The call of God primarily is a call into a relationship with your heavenly father. And so the Lord gives Moses here from verses 4 to 10, gives him two instructions as he approaches the burning bush, as he approaches the manifest presence of God. Uh, the Lord commands Moses firstly, do not intrude too far on my holiness. Don't come too close. This is a holy place. I am a holy God. And what this communicates to us that there is a disparity between a holy God and a sinful man. There is a gap between the creator and the creature. And what this also speaks to is our fallen humanity. Yeah. That since Adam took the plunge and sinned, we have had his nature imputed on us. We are all fallen, sinful creatures that have offended a holy God. And so we are not able to draw near. But the book of Hebrews says that Christ came. Came to earth and died for our sins and he became our righteousness. And now we are able to draw near. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 even tells us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence, let us enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the heart of truth in full assurance of faith by the blood of Jesus we can now approach the presence of God yeah. Amen. secondly Moses was instructed to take off his sandals Guzik states that the removing of sandals is an appropriate sign of humility because the poorest of the poor and the needy have no shoes or sandals. And back in ancient civilization, it was servants who usually went about barefoot. And so in ancient times, slaves generally went barefoot. And so God was communicating to him, Moses, you have to be willing to serve. You have to take up the posture of a servant. Secondly, by the taking off of the shoes or sandals, in many cultures it is also led to believe that you take off your sandals and your shoes when you come into someone's house. And now Moses was in God's house. And God says, you take off your sandals and so verses 7 to 8 the Lord continues to speak to Moses and he says I've heard the cry of my people their cry has come up to me there's this unbreakable love that God showed for his firstborn Israel conveys to us that God does care about our suffering God does care about our oppression God does care about how we feel when we go through a rock and a hard place God is concerned. God is a God has cared about your misfortune. God has cared about your losses and your pain and your rejection. And so he says to Moses, I have come down to deliver my people from the land of Egypt. Man, this is such a gospel statement. I have come down to deliver my people. 
the same manner Christ came down, John 6 tells us, from heaven, not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent him. Came down to bring us out from a greater bondage into a better promised land. Because we were in need of deliverance. We were in need of salvation. We were under, not Pharaoh's whip, we were under the devil's spell. So he says, I've come down to save. I've come down to deliver. But I want you to notice verse 8 and verse 10 of chapter 3 in your Bibles. God says, I have come down to deliver them. Now I want you to read verse 10. And God says, Come now therefore, I will send you Moses. If God said he's going to deliver the children of Israel, why is he sending Moses? If God says he's going to save Israel from the land of bondage, can't he do it all by himself? Why does he need Moses at all? And I said this to you last week. Is that people are God's methods. I've come down to deliver Israel, but I'm sending Moses. People are God's methods. Riken calls it the paradox of grace. Ian Bounds put it nicely when he said the church is looking for better methods. But God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery, better machinery, new equipment, not new organizational skills or more novel methods. But what the church needs today are men and women filled with the Holy Spirit that God can use men and women of prayer, men and women who are mighty in prayer, because the Holy Spirit doesn't just anoint methods. He doesn't just anoint programs. He anoints people. He does not come upon machinery. He comes upon men. He does not anoint plans. He anoints men and women of prayer. Amen. Are you still with me, family? Now we get to verses 11 to 15. And if you could just keep your eyes on verses 11 to 15 for me. Moses now responds to God and he says, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Notice how preoccupied and concerned Moses is about himself. God had declared he's going to deliver the people. Moses is saying, who am I that I should go to bring them out of Egypt? Moses is making the assertion that he cannot do the task correctly. But besides that, he is not doing the saving. God is. But there is a play on words here because Moses, Moses asks the question, who am I? And God says, Tell him, I am sent you. <laughs> and so while Moses is doubting himself and saying, who am I? God is saying, tell him, I am who I am. And I am sent you. And so Moses can't do this. And God is saying, you're not doing this. I am. Very good. Come on. Come on. And so Moses, if you will read from verse 13 he says to God indeed when I come to the children of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and 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 they what if they say to me what is his name what shall I say to them Moses here is anticipating a question which he expects to hear from the Israelites so when they ask what is his name he wants to know what must he respond What Moses does here is that he projects his doubts onto the children of Israel. And the question can be looked at in a few ways. Firstly, is Moses saying 
that the children of God don't know the name of their God. Is that what he's implying? That they have no idea what his name is? Or uh, have they forgotten what his name was since they've been so long in Egypt? Or will the question be posed to him in a manner to test him? Whether he really knows, since God sent you, who, what's his name? Yeah. Although this, this question of Moses seems valid, one cannot shrug off the fact that he is so fixated on his role instead of God's plan. It's often the case when we try to encourage people to get involved in the work of the Lord. We are so fixated about our concerns, yeah. Yeah. our feelings. Yeah. Hey, but brother, you know, uh, I don't think I'm ready yet. Yeah. I, I don't know enough yet. You know, uh, give me some, some time. Yeah. That's not how God works. Yeah. God doesn't wait till you're ready. You think Moses was ready? No. You think I was ready? You think Pastor Neil was ready, Pastor Wayne? None of us were ready. He does not call the equipped. He equips the cold. He says, come, I'll teach you on the job. <laughs> I'll show you on the job. There's no time to waste. If we knew he'd call, we'd probably spend our times getting ready and getting our, our masters in divinity, but then we'd be too puffed up for him to use. And, and so he says, I'll call you when you are ignorant. And when you despise your... your your, yourself and your skills I'll call you then because he calls he calls dead people That's right. and so God commissions Moses and he says he says to Moses tell them that my name is I am who I am and the God of their fathers have sent me uh, now I'm not sure when we were reading if you paid attention, you know. Uh, but when you read, you must always take on the role of an investigator. Look for repetition. Look for what's emphasized. Look for how much space is dedicated to a particular theme or subject. But we kept on stumbling upon the phrase, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says it three or four times in the passage and so when we try to understand uh, what uh, God means by I am what I am we have to understand and approach it in, in, in two ways we have to understand it contextually and we have to understand it etymologically it's a big word, a mountain to jump over so we must understand the context and the etymology of the word. So when we refer to the context, what we see connected with the name of God, Yahweh, is that I am Yahweh, I am who I am, and I've come down to redeem the children of Israel. So, uh, so you have deliverance and salvation attached in context to the name Yahweh. Secondly, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now you have covenant attached to the name of Yahweh. And remember, last was it a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about, uh, when we were in the book of Galatians, and we spoke about the promise of God to Abraham. It was an unconditional promise. He says, I will bless you. I will give you descendants. I will give you a seed. I will give you land. It was not, Abraham had little to none to do with the promise. God said, I will, I'm obligated to fulfill it. And he preached the gospel to Abraham. And so he's responding to the cries of Israel because of his promise yeah. to Abraham. Because he's a God of covenant and he keeps to his word. And so he reveals his name as I am. But notice, if you skip on in chapter 5, uh, you see Moses is concerned about how the people of God will respond to, to his, his arrival. And, and he, he says they will ask, what is his name? 
because they want to know what is his name. But if you look at chapter 5, when he comes before Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Because he, he is in a polytheistic uh, uh, a culture. You know, and Yahweh doesn't fit in the pantheon. Yahweh doesn't fit in his list of gods. Who is this God? So the who of Pharaoh relates to identification. Who, who is this Yahweh? I don't know him. But the Israelites are not concerned about who, which God this is. They want to know what is his name. And they associated character to a name. So they want to know what, what is the character of this God that has left us so long in bondage mm -hmm. that has sent you to set us free what is he like tell us and so when we look at the context we see that God is Yahweh in deliverance and is Yahweh by covenant and when we look at the etymology of the name the name in its root and development simply means that he is. When the Jews received that name, they would have heard, they would have understood as Moses saying, always has sent me. It speaks to his self-sufficiency, it speaks to his self-existence, it speaks to his immutability, it speaks to the fact that he does not change. And whatever God does, He does totally from a place of being a covenant keeper and a redeemer. And then we turn and we look at verses 16 to 22, and we won't spend much time there. Yeah, we see God outline the program of deliverance to Moses. He tells him, go to the elders of Israel tell them about the plan. In other words, Moses had to follow some protocol. He tells Moses in advance between verses 16 and 22 how he's going to deliver the children of Israel. He tells him in advance he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He tells him he's going to perform signs and wonders and miracles. And he tells him that when they escape from Egypt, they're not going to escape empty-handed. And now we come on to our last section, which is from chapter 4, verses 1 to 17, where Moses is seen as reluctant. Moses complains, and we see God kindle uh, in his anger towards Moses. And so the reluctance of Moses is actually a cross between him being really humble. The Bible describes him as being the meekest man in the earth. So it's a cross between him being humble but also stubborn, you know? you know. You must only be humble to a certain point and not get into a place where you're stubborn. No, pastor, not me. No, 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 no. And you be the, no, I can't do it. No, 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 no. You know, be humble, but don't be stubborn. <laughs> and so verses 1 to 17 of chapter 4 highlights the excuses and the reluctance of Moses and also the patience of God. Very good. God puts up with the excuses of this man. Yeah. But firstly, let's look at, uh, before we look into the excuses of Moses, he makes five excuses. Let's look into the Lord's response because the Lord gives him signs. Okay. Firstly, the Lord says, I will be with you. And then, and then the Lord gives him three signs. Firstly, uh, you will see from verses 3 to 5 of chapter 3, 6 to 8, and verses 9, you will see God give these signs to, um, to Moses. The first sign was the turning of the shepherd's staff into a snake. Okay? And so uh, this first sign, uh, it was like the Lord saying, if, if you're going to do what I call you to do, you have to have a measure of courage. You have to pick up that snake after it's turned from a rod to a snake by the tail, which is not a good place to pick up a snake. <laughs> so you have to have a measure of courage. But when, when Moses throws his rod down, he runs away when he sees the, the, the snake. What we also learn from the sign of Walton states is that the rod in Egypt was a symbol of power and authority. And the snake actually represented uh, uh, Egypt's power. And so on Pharaoh's crown, you would have a serpent figure which was attributed to the god Urias, uh, which featured very prominently on his crown and in all the, 
all the infrastructure. This first sign suggests, Walton says, that Pharaoh and his authority are completely under the control of God, yeah. the power of God. Then God gives Moses a second sign. Second sign is that his hand becomes now leprous, you know, full of leprosy. Uh, but though uh, scholars say that this was not actually a leprosy, it could have been a number of other skin conditions or diseases. Uh, but now we have Moses first run from fear uh, for the snake. And now he must have been even more horrified when he takes his hand, puts it in his coat and pulls it out and he has a diseased hand. But one thing we learn from scripture, uh, what's associated with diseased skin or, or leprosy is always a sense of, of pride. Uh, we see that in Numbers 12, 2 Kings 5, and 2 Chronicles 26, where we have people who assumed a divine role and God struck them with leprosy. And so leprosy is a sign of a, a proud heart and someone who is presumptuous to presume, uh, uh, presume a divine role and to make themselves out to be like a god or step over the boundary lines and God strikes them and intervenes uh, with, with leprosy and so as God communicating to Pharaoh because at that time according to Hannah uh, uh, leprosy or the skin disease was common in Egypt and so God was communicating to Pharaoh and Egypt um, that they are full of pride, he's full of pride, uh, and he has presumed a divinely appointed role. He's crossed over the line. And then the third sign is given to Moses, which is uh, uh, the ability to turn the water, um, not into wine, I almost said turn water into wine, <laughs> but to turn the water of the Nile into blood. And if you understand uh, ancient Egyptian culture, the Nile River was a source of life and productivity for the people. It represented the prosperity of Egypt. And God was declaring to Egypt and Pharaoh, I am in control of your prosperity and I will remove it from you. And it's of my opinion that Egypt has not recovered up until this day. And, and this sign also of the turning of the water into blood also anticipates the many plagues to come because many of them come out from the Nile that they worshipped. And God uses the sign to humble them. And so God uh, gives Moses these signs to assure him. But Moses comes up with five excuses. And I'm going to be bringing this to a close. The first excuse Moses gives to God, he says, I am not enough. I am not enough. That's in chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm not enough, Lord. The second excuse he gives is found in verse 13 where he basically says, Lord, I don't know all the answers. I don't have the know-how. Where he says, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, what shall I say to them? The third excuse he gives is found in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, where he basically says, Lord, the people won't believe me. And verse four, chapter 4, verse 1 says, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me. Or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. The fourth excuse he gives is, he says, Lord, I'm a terrible public speaker. I'm bad at speaking. But I think here Moses was uh, calling God's bluff here because Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was powerful in speech. <laughs> I think he's really just grabbing a straws here. He's looking for anything to get out of this. And then fifthly, he says, Lord, I am not qualified. He says, oh, Lord, in verse 13 of chapter 4, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Send someone else, but anyone but not me. What are the excuses you are making this morning, family? Some of us have been wandering around in the backside of the desert for many years. Many years. You've thought that your time is up. You said, I've had my days. I'll leave it over for the young folk, the younger generation. You know that famous line? I'll leave it for someone who's, who's been to Bible school, who, who knows how to actually play the piano. My skills are not there yet. 
came to tell you this morning in a simple way stop making excuses <laughs> stop making excuses of course you're not enough the people are not going to believe <laughs> God said to Isaiah I'm sending you to a people that's not going to hear a word you're saying but I want you to go in hearing they will hear but not, not understand, in seeing they will see but not perceive he came unto his own and his own received him not, of course they're not going to believe you, some won't some may, but some won't of course you are a terrible speaker some of you are not, you're calling God's bluff. <laughs> it's the first thing I said to the Lord, Lord, I hate the sound of my voice. You know when I was a call center agent and did you know, quality assessment, and I listened to my voice on the call, I'm like, it sounds like someone's nose is blocked. <laughs> Lord, must I really become a preacher? Man, have you heard T.D. Jakes' voice? Have you heard Pastor Neb's voice? My goodness, and all the bass and treble, yeah, Pastor Clinton. And yeah, you have this scrawny, nasal, post-nasal drip preacher <laughs> speaking. What is your excuse? Is your excuse, I'm, I'm too involved in my activities. I'm, I'm buried with other activities. I'm too busy at work. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy with the family. I'm, what is your excuse this morning? You have buried yourself in the ordinary routines of life and you've shrugged off the call of God. God calls us on two main areas and I'm done. Firstly, He calls sinners to repentance. What's your excuse? Are you still of the type that says, Lord, tomorrow, when I'm ready, you know how many people I said, uh, I, I've encountered who said, I first want to give up cigarettes. <laughs> no, let me first give up my, I'm going to have it with the, what they're calling it now, okay, marijuana, you know, so I give up my joint first. Wait, 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 then I'll come to, then I'll come to the Lord. I just want to, just want to stop with this business first. Come as you are. Yeah. Come as you are. And when you come as you are, don't stay as you are. <laughs> Let him do the work supernaturally in your heart. Amen. Second way he calls us is that he calls us to some kind of service in his kingdom. Doesn't mean you call to preach, maybe you call to usher, you, you, you call to be an astute businessman to finance the kingdom. The Lord knows we need kingdom financiers. <laughs> he may be calling you to be a musician, he may be calling you to serve in any. What is God calling you to? Or, or, or are you at the place where you are indifferent to it? But there's a call going out this morning. A call for salvation. And a call to service. But stop making excuses. Can we stand this morning? Amen.